Business is simple. It's just not easy. We focus on three things to help you run and grow your business more easily. Talent, sales, and how to scale. This is the Talent, Sales, and Scale Show. Hey everyone, Brian Whittington with this episode of the Talent, Sales, and Scale Show. We have a real treat for you, author Nigel Green. Um, he is just Nigel Green. So reach out to him. He's doing some sales management, sales leadership help. And he wrote the book, Revenue Harvest, a sales leader's almanac for planning the perfect year. So it's not, you know, you always hear these things. It's the, uh, it's a holiday season. And then it gets into, it's a new year. And then it gets into the, the you know, it's a vacation. And there's always a season, but not according to Nigel, the, the, the almanac for the perfect sales year, not excuse making. So it should be a really interesting show. So so welcome to the show, Nigel. Thanks for having me, Brian. It's good to be with you. Yeah, appreciate it. So um, one of the things that caught my attention, and I think the topic for today is, is really talking about, you wrote this book, A Sales Leader's Almanac for Sales Planning for the Perfect Year, which has a lot of overtones to a sales manager, um, but you wrote it from a sales leadership perspective. So I, I wanted to hit your viewpoint of the difference between sales leadership and sales management, no matter the title, but a little bit about the differences, and then we can get some more specifics about that. So that's where I'd like to talk to start. So I guess other than you being the author and writing the book on it, I mean, why in the world should anyone listen to you about the difference between sales management and sales leadership? Yeah, so I think it's a, it's a fair question. And I think sales manager and sales leader are terms that I would use interchangeably. So one kind of technical nuance that I'll point out is the, the book is written for and from the perspective of an executive level sales leader, meaning that there are frontline sales managers that report to you. So you are one or two steps removed from the customer. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no value in reading it for a frontline sales manager or for a seller because I found, and I've had folks tell me in a sales role and a frontline sales management role that they've read the book, they've taken it back to their CEO, they've taken it back to their management team, and they've begun implementing the principles and it's had an indelible effect on their ability to scale and grow, which gets to the essence of your question, the difference between leadership and management. Sales managers and the idea of sales management is about external growth. It's about this need to fulfill some market-facing expectation for improved sales, more sales, more revenue. And the challenge the fundamental problem and disconnect with sales, the way sales managers think, they're so focused on external growth, they ignore the fact that external growth is a byproduct of internal growth. You will not improve your revenue, your sales performance, if you don't improve yourself and the people. Sales leadership is about making investments into the people, the systems, the structure so that external growth can happen. You can't just focus on external growth and ignore internal growth and expect sales results to improve. Interesting. So, and I like that, that, that difference because it goes away from the stereotypical, right? Usually you hear, wow, sales managers is more on the tactical and, you know, hitting the number and leadership is more on strategy. So I like that you, 
you, you took this at a completely different viewpoint. So the difference between external versus internal growth. Now you talked about sales leader with the people system structure. Did I have that right? Yeah. Okay. So I guess whenever I, I look at sales managers, I always look that a good leader will tend to lean on their frontline people to help build out the, the people systems and structure, right? Leaders, in my mind, and, and um, I'll look for your feedback here to correct me, leaders should be building leaders. And so is that what you're writing about is how these frontline leaders can build leadership into managers? Yeah, what I'm, what I'm writing about, Brian, is this statistic that over 50% or right, I think it's 53% was the latest statistic of sales teams miss their quota every year. Right. So roll the dice, flip a coin, 50-50 chance you're going to, the team, your business is going to hit the number. Add to that, that the sales leadership, and that's the sales manager to VP to the chief, the average tenure and mid-level to senior level sales leadership is less than 18 months. Yeah. And that keeps coming so down. And that keeps coming down. Okay, and, and part of the problem is that there are no fundamentals being taught to the sales leadership team. It's they, they come in and they, they run the same play that they ran in a previous business or in a previous for a previous company or in a different industry. And, and there's no one talking about the fundamentals that are industry agnostic, go to market structure agnostic. And so the book takes seven principles that I've borrowed from my friends in the agricultural community, farmers and ranchers that every year have to take cattle to market or produce a crop, regardless of all the things that they can't control, like weather, pricing. You know, The sales leader can't control so many things around the talent market, the competitive landscape, uh, things that are going to happen in the marketplace. But yet, despite that, they still have to hit the number. So I've laid out seven principles that if you do them well throughout the course of the year, year over year, you will hit your number and you won't be one of those statistics that gets fired in 18 months or less or misses their target every other year. Yeah. Well, let's let's hit that. I mean, that seems like a good place to start. So can you walk us through what are the, the seven fundamentals that you would suggest? The, the first principle is planning. So the extent to which you can build and execute a plan. The second is positioning. We've all been on teams where there was a plan and there was a beautiful Excel document, but the sales team didn't buy in. So positioning is the second uh, principle. The third is prepare. And that's around training and hiring and recruiting and getting the right people in the right position to execute the plan that we've positioned. The fourth is plant. And that's about prospecting, uh, and that's about putting putting seeds in the ground, creating leads. The fifth principle is tend, to take care of, to tend to. Uh, and, and that's about how you tend to your people, how you tend to the business, and how you tend to the customers. Then you have harvest. That's what everybody wants. They want to put the hay in the bar. That's the sixth principle. And the seventh, and I think the most ignored and most misunderstood, is restore. When most people hear restore, they think of, uh, especially when I when I get into the book and I talk about seasonalities, they immediately think, well, after you know, after the harvest, at the end of the year, we want to rest and we give people time off. 
That is not the essence. Rest and restoration are two different things. Rest is to not use. Restore is to bring back to its original state. Most sales leaders, they're good at giving people time off, giving vacation, but they don't build them back up. And that's where I talk about the internal growth versus, versus the external growth. Restoration is about building the team back up for the next selling season. And those are the seven principles. Okay, well, let, let's hit those. So from a planning perspective, I, I always find it curious that salespeople are often the least strategic people out there. They, they are so heads down and they'll think in terms of a week or two whenever they're new or maybe a month whenever they're a little bit more seasoned, they might look out to a quarter. So whenever you're looking at sales, <coughs> excuse me, sales leaders, help me understand a little bit about what should that planning process look like? I mean, it's super, it's super simple question for people that are good planners, but I, I found most people, they're horrible at the planning side. Well, it, most sales leaders put too much emphasis on the plan and not enough emphasis on the exercise and the discipline of planning. The plan is useless. If you've led a sales team long enough, you find out very early in the year that the plan you wrote back in October for the upcoming year, you can throw it out the window by March because one of your key contributors left, you lost a big customer, you all of a sudden had a shift in the products that you were going to take to market, all these things that we couldn't anticipate. So that gets me to the first uh, failure in planning. Sales leaders forget to account for and anticipate adversity. Hmm. So they build out these Beautiful models. Looks great. It's typically, you know, finance or it's a top-down kind of planning exercise, but no one accounted for the fact that there might be a plague or that we would lose two of our biggest customers because of reasons that we could control or that one of our top reps would leave. Uh, All these things that come up. And so I think good planning is about a accounting for and anticipating adversity and building in some type of margin in your result expectations to account for the unforeseen and the unforeseeable. Now, can you give uh, a sense or a couple of suggestions on how you might do that? Because a lot of times I think uh, salespeople are notoriously, you know, I always joke around they're smoking hopium because you have to have that positive mindset. And so often People don't want to look at the negative side, um, but my, my sense is what you're suggesting is don't dwell on the negative, however, have a, an alternative plan for whatever the un, unforeseen does come up. Exactly. I, I am a proponent of neutral thinking, okay? So there's, there's a lot of science that shows that if you dwell on the negative, it will actually have a negative impact on your ability to perform. 100%. That's very well understood. However, what most leaders do is they try to promote this positivity, this Pollyanna kind of, yeah, come on, you can do it, you can do it. And in the face of adversity, it's a bit uh, misplaced sometimes to say, you know what, you just lost that big customer, but be positive. You're going through a divorce with your spouse, but you can still put that at rest and hit your number this quarter. There's no science to support that just positive thinking alone will help a positive outcome. So what I encourage leaders to do is just be neutral. Just recognize that there will be good days. There will be bad days. And so the the practical application 
for sales leaders. And I, and I borrowed this from Jim Collins book, great by choice is this notion of a 20 mile March. Uh-huh. Are you familiar with the concept? Yeah, absolutely. And, and so sales leaders have to have this 20 mile March approach, which is a disciplined approach, which is to say in a world full of uncontrollables, what are the things that this team and myself that I can control? Typically, it's around some type of input, some type of behavior, some type of activity, some type of mindset and way of being. And how do I hold myself and my team accountable, regardless of circumstances, good day, bad day, to perform these activities and exhibit these behaviors consistently day in and day out for a long period of time? And, and when you do that, it creates favor. It creates uh, momentum in the face of adversity, which is going to happen. Yeah. So why don't you unpack that a little bit more? Because it's been a while since I've read the book and it was uh, related to the 20, 20 mile baton death, mar- or death march, uh, if, I, if I'm remembering that correctly. No, it's actually a, a story from 1911. Two professional adventurers set out to be the first team to reach the South Pole. Oh, that's right. Okay. So you had you had a Brit named Robert Falcon Scott, and you had a Swede named Roald Amundsen. The remarkable thing about this story, Brian, is they both left within days of one another. The, the routes that they mapped out to get from base camp to the South Pole were both around 1,400 miles. One team reached the South Pole the exact date that they pinned in their plan to hit the South Pole and return back to base camp alive. The other team reached the South Pole weeks after the first team, and unfortunately, none of them survived. The difference in the two is Amundsen, who reached the South Pole the exact date that he planned and returned all of his men back safely, subscribed to a disciplined approach in the face of uncertainty. He said, regardless of circumstances, we are going to march 20 miles today. Good weather, bad weather, gale force winds, hungry, no food, doesn't matter. We're doing 20 miles. Now, when things are great, we're not going to push it beyond 20 miles. And that's where the discipline comes in. And this is where a lot of sales leaders fall short. And this is what got ultimately led to, to Robert Falcon Scott's and his team's uh, death and demise. They would meet good weather and they would march 40 days, you know, 40 miles in a day. So when you march 40 miles in a day, you're tired, you consume more calories. And the next day you can't do the 20. So think about that from a sales leader's role. When you're building momentum and, and you're, you're having, a, you've got big pipeline or you've got a big number in the, in the quarter and you push and you ask people to do 12 hours and you ask them to push hard to hit this big number and then you just throw right on top of it in the next quarter another big number and you don't account for the fact that it took a lot of effort to get that done. You run your team to exhaustion and you're gonna, they're going to die. I mean, metaphorically, they will die on the vine. And so part of planning is to know that if, if we've got a, some big seasonality or if we've got a big launch or a big push or some sense of adversity and maybe we're down some team members because of COVID, we've got to redistribute this quota and we've got to redistribute the leads and I'm asking people to make more calls, be mindful of that and know that we, we've got to have some rest at some point where this team is not going to make it. And, and that's kind of how 
mean, it's a great example of why most leaders don't make it because you cannot continue to externally grow, externally grow, hit a bigger number without investing in your team. Well, and I'm glad that I uh, asked you to unpack that because I had forgotten about that story. And that was a great illustration. Um, so I'm going to go to restore next because I think that's a good um, offshoot of what you're just talking about. So talk to us a little bit about that discipline, especially whenever it goes to restore. So I'd ask one, the definition of restore, if you can unpack that a little bit more, and then two, how we bring that discipline into the restore. Yeah. So restore is to return to its original state. Okay. So uh, here in the Midwest where I live, they, they practice um, crop rotation. Which is to say, if I'm gonna, if they're gonna, if a farmer's gonna plant corn in, in a piece of ground in the one season, as soon as they harvest it, they're not gonna go right back and, and put more corn over it. And they know that because corn takes a certain amount of nutrients out of the ground, so they, they go in and they plant something else like soy or wheat that has a restorative property to it. So by growing it, it replaces what was depleted when we had corn. So the crop rotation is that uh, every time you take something out, you put something in that's going to put it back in. So what does that have to do with selling? When you go and harvest a customer, when you go and ask them to spend tens of thousands of dollars with you in a year, you better make sure before you go back and ask for the renewal or that second or third transaction that we've done the work to make deposits back into that relationship. And that's called value reviews. That's through strategic account planning in the B2B world. That's, that's the customer side of restoration. Now, from the sales leaders, and the sales leader has to institute this with your big accounts, or you're going to lose them. They're going to go somewhere else. One thing that we know to be true about all customers is they leave. Yes. But the extent to which we can practice restoration we increase the longevity of them staying with the business. And so it's the sales leader's job to teach the reps how to do that restoration work through value reviews and through making investments into the, the customer throughout the course of the year so that when we go to ask for the money, it's a no-brainer that the customer is, is willing to extend the contract with us. Now, when it comes to dealing with people, when you've laid out an aggressive sales target that requires 30% more sales from a seller than it did the previous year, and they hit it, they're tired. They're going to want to do things outside of work. Uh, they're going to be depleted. And it's your job as the leader to build them back up. And sometimes that is through fun and, and celebration and team building exercises. Sometimes it's just through rest by giving them some quota relief or giving them the, an unexpected day off. But I found that the, the real energizing and the real restorative behavior for the sales leader is to make an investment into the sellers. It's through training. It's through giving them an opportunity to advance their career or to learn something else. And so the, the leader has this responsibility, Brian, through the course of the year, to create opportunities to restore the team. And sometimes it is through offsites. Sometimes it's just sending them off to go study something else or to go take an executive course at you know, a business school or go, go get a training from, from uh, you know, some sales consultant. You, 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 can, you can figure it out, but the leader has to 
do this work and back to planning has to budget for these types of expenses and build it into the cost of sale if you want to hit your number year in and year out. So let's take from that, that's, that's uh, restore specifically about rebuilding the team and training them. And let's, I'm going to pop up to three prepare because in that prepare, you talk about train higher. Um, talk to, talk to the sales leader, the sales manager that whenever they've tried this, because they know that that restoration, that training, that rebuilding, the, the sharpening of the saw, if you will, um, a lot of times salespeople and sales managers bristle at that or bristle, whatever the right word is, um, because they, they feel like, ah, that's just something else I got to do. It's a flavor of the month. Talk to that sales leader, sales manager, salesperson that might not really believe that that training is restorative. Mm. So the training itself is a is the prepare principle. Okay, we training is a non-negotiable. Like if you don't train, if you don't get better, you're going to be replaced. You will become irrelevant. If you don't like change, if you don't like training, you're really going to hate irrelevance. That's what I tell people. Okay, <laughs> but, but, but if you have that problem, okay, sales leaders, if you're listening to this and you say, I want to train them, I give them all access to this stuff, but, but they don't want to do it. You actually have a positioning problem. Mm. So you have, you have a problem with the second principle when that, You've done a poor job of communicating and exhibiting to your team that in order for us to execute the plan, in order for this team to accomplish what needs to happen in order for the business to be successful, we have to improve in certain areas the internal growth in order to create the external growth. So there's, there's no attachment to how this training and the preparation principle supports the plan, a positioning problem. That's where a really good plan, poorly positioned, equals failure. And so if you have folks on your team that are resistant to training, it's because you've done a poor job of connecting who they're going to be at the end of the retraining to who they need to be in order to hit the plan. So interesting. I was not expecting you to say that. I was expecting you to say more along the lines of you've hired poorly, right? Because so many, um, I always look at one has to have that growth mindset, the willingness to always improve and grow and um, not necessarily positioning. So talk to me a little bit about that positioning and within that positioning, is it that you're helping them to realize their goals and the why behind it? Or can you unpack that a little bit more? Yep. So in the positioning principle, I talk about mission, vision, plan. Okay. So the mission is the non-negotiable imperative of the company. It's why it exists. It's the problem it's solving in the marketplace. It's to some degree, if we, to your, to your question about hiring, right, it has played a contributing factor to why anyone on your sales team joined the organization. They believed in the mission of the company. Okay. Now, that mission oftentimes gets lost in the plan. Sales leaders forget to anchor the mission, the purpose of the organization with the sales plan. That's because they didn't do a good job at casting a vision. The vision 
is basically that sales team's battle cry, that motto, that mantra for the upcoming year that bridges the gap between mission and the plan. The plan is just how we're going to execute the vision so that this mission becomes possible, because, so that it becomes realized. So think of it as in the plan is going to require me to do something differently this year. It means I'm going to have to take a new job. I'm going to have to hire more people. I'm going to have to increase quota. I'm going to have to do a better job at converting leads. Like all these things are going to have to be different in order for us to produce greater external results. You're going to face as a leader resistance to that. The resistance isn't to the plan. It's to the change that I have to exhibit. It's the training I'm going to have to do. It's the, the new person I'm going to have to be. A compelling vision, which is a battle cry that reminds the team that this is really just how we're going to execute the mission that you signed up for. The company that the company is executing this mission, we're changing the world. And you said you wanted to be a part of that. The plan is just how we're going to do it. And the vision is us saying, yep, this is, this is why we have to do it. And so it's typically two to three words that exhibit, like that characterize the change that needs to happen or the struggle that we're going to face or who we need to be throughout the year in order to execute the plan and accomplish the mission. Yeah. And, and so my, my mind goes to, um, there's nothing new under the sun. You know, you look at Simon Sinek begins with why. So it's that you're calling it messaging that gets to the why behind this. And you're also talking about people that are bought into the mission where it's, it's a purpose greater than self. And that's, um, I'm reading a book right now called legacy. Um, it's about a, uh, a rugby team and, and it's going through all of these things. And what's hit me is, your statement is it's finding people that are others focused, because if you're only focused on yourself or if you're only focused on how much money you're going to make, um, which is all important, that's kind of the scorecard whenever you're in sales. So you have to have somewhat of money motivation. But it seems to me what you're talking about here for you to really have a massive impact and a massive change, it's that mission that war cry where people are going to be able to rally around for the team, do whatever it takes legal, moral, and ethical to do it and then celebrate it as a, as a team. Is that kind of what I'm picking up from you? Yeah. And it's all driven by data, Brian. So Lisa Earl McLeod wrote a book called noble selling purpose. Are you familiar with it? I'm not. So in her book, noble selling purpose, she conducted a double blind study of over 10,000 sales reps, every industry, every sales cycle, the number one prevailing truth from the data is that the sellers that represented a product or service that they had a personal opinion to or a personal story of how that offering changed their life or someone else's life fundamentally outperformed every other seller and every other data point. Yeah. And so that I've used that data point, this this notion that finding sellers that have a compelling experience with your offering as an interviewing tool to say, I want you to come work here because you believe in the problem that this company is trying to solve. Those individuals outperform every other type of seller. And so 
Yes, you need competency. Yes, it, all these other attributes of, of top performing reps, of industry experience and quota attainment, all that's important. But if you can find that and someone that's passionate about the problem you're offering solves, it, it just makes the positioning and all the other principles a heck of a lot easier to execute. Yeah, I love that. So I just marked that down and I really appreciate that. So I've, I've not heard that before. And that just to make sure I got it, it's noble selling purpose. Mm -hmm. Okay, got it. Um, and, and it makes perfect sense because people sell on conviction. And if you truly believe in what you're doing, you can't help but talk about it. I mean, if you're really passionate about it, you can't really help but talk about it. And I think people change behavior whenever they trust you. And that passion, that conviction, I think helps you to automatically build that trust. So um, that, that's really interesting. I'll have to check that out. Okay. So what else is encompassed in positioning? Because I was expecting positioning to be more on messaging. So you have the plan um, and then the positioning. Can you unpack that a little bit more? So what else in addition to getting buy-in from the team does positioning include? Yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, and so just to, this, these principles are really mostly about the leader's responsibility to the business and the team, okay? So positioning is not about messaging to the marketplace or positioning your product. It's more about positioning the team to be successful. It's kind of, you've heard that analogy of like, if two planes took off from, from LA to fly to New York and one was off by one degree, they're going to, they're not, where are they going to end up, right? Somewhere in, in Nova Scotia or Baltimore, depending on which, which 1% they're off. Positioning is about making sure they are facing the right direction in order to execute the plan. Okay. And that's where it's about. So I use this example, like positioning is, is all about the sales kickoff. It's about the quarterly meetings of bringing the team back together to remind them of why and what we're here to do. The, the other elements of positioning is uh, I, I talk about this notion of a sales leadership council. And that is a tool that a sales leader can use to get back closer to the front lines. So as you get further removed from the customer and that frontline sales rep, it's less likely that you're going to know how things really are. Yeah, right. Okay, so a sales council is a team that's hand-selected by the leader that cares nothing. Like So acceptance to this team has nothing to do with tenure, has nothing to do with role. It all has to do with, does this individual help me get closer to the truth to be a sense-making tool to make the best decisions for the team? So it might be someone that's brand new, less than 90 days. It might be one of your top reps. And then you don't invite that rep's manager. It might be a new manager. It might be someone from customer success. It might be someone from the product team. But you put together around you people that you trust, people that you can have uh, vulnerable conversations and confidence, and you know that it's not going to leave so that you can help, so they can help you make tough decisions like changes to the comp plan or changes in policy or changes in, in product or changes in team dynamic or changes in technology, it's not going to be very well received. Or there's a risk that it might ruffle other people's feathers. So an example might be, we, we've got to make a change to the comp plan that pushes more emphasis to this product that we're, we're not selling enough of. 
how's that going to be received? Oh, well, so-and-so is going to really like that, or this team's going to hate it because they don't have enough opportunity in their market to sell it. So it's before you just make this widespread change, you've got others to run it by so they can help you with how you position it, how you frame it to the team so that everyone will march. Got it. So that positioning is really alignment. Exactly. Okay. Understood. Um, Now, Forgive me. We have planning, positioning, prepare, plant, tend, uh, harvest, and restore. Where's the execution? Tend. Tend. Okay, okay. so let's hit that one then. Because you, just because a farmer puts seeds in the ground doesn't mean that they're just going to, there's 120 days later, there's going to be something to harvest, right? Yeah, we keep trying that. It doesn't work, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. The work starts once the prospecting starts, okay? And so tending, right, the sales leader has, has three core stakeholders, the business, the, the team, the sales team, and the customer. So the tend, the execution of that is all about how you manage customers, how you manage the business, and how you manage the team. And so I offer guidance for direct-to-consumer sales teams, B2B sales team, which is where a lot of my experience comes from. But the 10 principle is all about how you manage your time, how you manage yourself, how you manage the business, and how you manage the customer. Now, do you are you a proponent of KPIs and leading and lagging indicators? Or can you how are you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and so the my I guess the the big aha in the 10 principle is I believe there is one meeting cadence and if it's a b if it's a b to c so if you're selling something to an individual consumer you would do an opportunity review and if you have a b2b offering you would do an accounts review i think this one meeting serves as a performance review a forecast a goal setting exercise it it does everything in one meeting and so i unpack how to execute those meetings how to take the findings from those meetings, roll it up into a more formal report that you can give to your management team or to the board that serves as what are the problems, concerns, disappointments that the team has experienced in the last 30 days? What can the business expect from sales results and KPIs in the next 30 to 90 days? Who are our big customers? What are the competitive threats? What does the team need from the business in order to continue being successful or to help improve a problem in the, in the business? And so I, I think it's an easy hack for sales leaders, especially those that are pressed on time to do one. And I'm not saying you need to just meet with your producers and your sales team once a month. But if you do this meeting once a month, it will give you a lot of optics into what's going on in the business and the marketplace. Now, would you say that that supports a scorecard in place of a scorecard? Um, Are you big on scorecards at all? Yeah, I, I love scorecards. So, uh, no, it doesn't replace the scorecard. The scorecard is one of the things that gets brought to the meeting. Okay. Okay. So the scorecard has, you know, if you if folks of you, if you're not, if you haven't, if you're not familiar with the concept of a scorecard, uh, you can find more on it in, in Gino Wickman's work, Traction, and also in, uh, I think, G8 Smart's book, Who. They, they, they reference the scorecard. So the, a good scorecard has, you know, a mission for the role, and it typically has five key result areas that are required for success in that role. And so when you bring that scorecard and it's got those five 
you know, holy grail metrics and key result areas, and then it's got the objective measures that comes up in your accounts review or your opportunity review is how we are tracking towards each of those metrics. Now, and, and I talk about this in the book, when you, do, when you execute the accounts or opportunities reviews well, your job as a manager, your role shifts to that of a note taker. You're just taking notes as to whether or not that salesperson chose to do what they said they were going to do in the previous accounts or opportunities review. They're going to make commitments. You're going to write them down. You're, you're going to make commitments to them too. You're going to write them down. We're going to publish those commitments. We're going to come back to them in 30 days. Did I do what I said I was going to do? Yes or no. Did you do what you said you were going to do? Yes or no. And then you got 12 documented conversations that lead up to an annual review. There should be no surprises for anyone on how the year went because we, we looked at it 12 times. Yeah. And that's a beautiful time whenever you, because if everything is objective, if you have those accountability uh, measurements or those success measurements, then that's the area where you can coach, mentor, and train to not necessarily micromanage, but allow the people. And I think you've said it, um, it's allowing people in an autonomous way to self-manage because if they make that commitment, then, you know, um, you seem like a kind of a, a book reader as well. It gets into that extreme ownership. You own what you've stated and you keep your commitment. So um, that makes your management so much easier and it's less, you know, breaking rocks in prison and, and you know, driving people with a whip and a bullhorn and more their idea where they actually want to go out and, and wake up in the morning and do the darn thing. Um, exactly. Now, so we, we do that tending. And so th the tending is the execution of it, really focused on the people, helping them to hold themselves accountable, um, which I would guess goes back to that positioning. And so part of that positioning would be their own goal, goal setting and their own goal execution. Well, that's the planning. That, that, that's the plan. So I think one of the things that uh, sales leaders do poorly in planning, which leads to bad positioning, is uh, there's no bottom up inside and no bottom up contribution to the planning exercise. They just push the number down versus asking, even down at the rep level, what do you think is a realistic goal for you in the coming year? And so I, I like, look, I, I get there's always going to be this top down element where the board gives the, the management team a number because we like if you've got a board or if you've got a founder, they want to grow. They want to everybody's got to go up and to the right. So, OK, great. What is that number? Your job as the sales leader is to first level set and make sure that number's real. If it's real, if it's doable, even though it may be a stretch and may require a lot of investment to get it done, investment in time, resources, whatever. OK, then you go to your management team and say, here's what we got to do. How are we going to do it? So and then you give the management team the opportunity to, to pick what they want to own. And then, the, then they go to the sales team and say, here's our number. Sally, I'm not just going to tell you, you got to do 130% of next year. What do you want? Sally may say, give me 150. I got it. I got the, and, and that gives Darren some quota relief because he's struggling or he's in a, like, that's how you have to do sales plan. And when you, when I feel like I contributed to the plan, I'm a heck of a lot more inclined to be to to position and go and go after it and do the training, do the preparation, do all the other principles. Yeah, because you own it. Otherwise, it, it, because if somebody doesn't believe that they're going to be able to hit the number, 
guess what? They're going to make sure that they don't hit that number because they don't believe that they can do it. And so, uh, yeah, I'm, it's really curious why more people don't do that, why they don't reach out to the team and say, hey, what do you think that you can do? And because that conversation and reaching out to the team and going, what do you think you can do? How can you do it? And get them to say how they're going to actually execute it. Because a lot of people, they'll just put their thumb in the wind and see, you know, you know, just take a guess. And if they don't have that plan pushed down to the very lowest level, then it all gets to a guessing game and it's ripe for failure. So, um, yeah, it's kind of curious. I mean, none of this is rocket science. It's all common sense, yet so few people actually do it. It's uh it's, un, it's an unbelievable thing. So now let's move to, so we at least hit all of these. Let's move to Harvest. So talk to me a little bit about Harvest. Is that pipeline management, deal flow management, um, that, that process? Can you unpack that a touch? Yeah, it's, it, is, um, it is pipeline management. It is deal flow management. And, and one of the things I talk about in the Harvest principle is unhiding the work. Okay, so in, in my practice, Brian, I, I work, I coach executive level sales leaders and one of the things I hear most often is this frustration that they have with their management team. It's always asking them, how's the month going to look? How's the quarter going to look? Or we, we need to know, we need to know, we need to know. Like th there's all this anticipation. And I ask them, have you unhid the work? And they're like, well, what do you mean by that? You are doing a great job as a sales leader. If you have help and manage your management team's expectations and you have given them a dashboard that they can access without having to come to you to see what they need to know when the board or when shareholders or they're just up at night and they want to know how the team is performing. And I think a lot of sales leaders want to veil that because they don't have good sales economics. They don't really know how their funnel should work. And so they, they, it's a guessing game. And so what I talk about in the harvesting principle is how to forecast with accuracy and then how to manage your leader's expectations by showing them how to go access the meaningful KPIs in real time without coming to you so that you can do your job and you don't have to spend so much time in all these sideways energy conversations around managing expectations and helping uh, navigate uncertainty and anxiety about whether or not it's going to be a good month or good quarter, unhide the work. Yeah. And, and uh, there, there's a book called The One Minute Manager. And it talks yep. about, um, you know, bowling whenever there's a sheet over the, the bowling pins and the sheet over the scorecard. I mean, we can't as sales leaders expect our sales managers to do their job and with, without that information. So I uh, couldn't agree with you anymore on that one. Excuse me. All right. So um, Mike, we could talk all day on this stuff, but I, I want to be calling this at a time. So let's uh, kind of wrap, uh, wrap this down. Um, whenever you're looking at the sales leadership and leading the sales team in, in these seven uh, key fundamentals, what would you say the biggest challenge that you find in people trying to implement this for the first time that we can maybe avoid? Oh, I, I think it's the, the biggest challenge is the, uh, is the discipline, right? Like I like you said, there's nothing new in this book. Okay. So like where teams fail is they don't have the moxie or the rigor to just do the work. Yeah. Like it, I mean, there's nothing in this book that's going to just blow your mind right now. The organization of it and the application of it may be like, Oh, this is, this is creative. This is interesting. 
But the principles and the truths, I mean, they've been around since the beginning of farming, which is why they're they're timeless. It's just doing the work. And I think, you know, similar to kind of the work that, that you do, one of the things that I have to help my clients understand is you get two things as a sales leader. You get what you create. And we spend a lot of time as not just sales leaders, but as leaders in general, focusing on what we're creating, the new initiatives and all the exciting stuff. But you also get what you tolerate. And we don't like to spend time addressing the things that we've been tolerating that we need to stop tolerating. And that is you're only as good as your worst customer. You're only as good as your worst rep. And your management team is only as good as your worst manager. And nobody wants to hear that. But guess what? Farmers know you can have a bumper crop, but there's still weeds. You got to pull them. And as sales leaders, we've got to get better at pulling weeds. Yeah, the, the accountability piece, most people don't like it because it's uncomfortable. And too often, so many salespeople and sales leaders have what are called high need for approval. So they don't want to have those difficult conversations. But without those difficult conversations, you'll never be as effective as you could be. And everyone knows this stuff. And, you know, I, I don't know if you've... Um, you would agree with this or not, but I've heard it put this way. The first time that you think about letting somebody go, you're probably three months behind. And how often have you, whenever somebody was finally let go, the whole rest of the team goes, oh, about time, because they knew it way before you did. You know, may, maybe I, I'll say this. Um, I, I tell, because I, I just had this conversation yesterday with a, a gentleman that I coach. Um, I said, it's only fair to that individual that if you're having the conversation in your mind, about whether or not they're going to make it, that we start having it with them. Yeah, 100%. And so, I, and so that, I think that's where it's probably you're three months behind and the team goes, are you kidding me? It's because, well, you, you probably three months ago had this conversation in your head. That's the time we sit down and say, hey, you know, I'm, today I began to wonder if you're even going to make it or not. Yeah, and then actually have a PIP, that uh, performance improvement plan, that's actually for that reason, for a performance improvement plan, not just to document a reason to get rid of somebody. So wholly agree with that statement too. Yeah. Um, all right, perfect. Now, how about um, maybe your business, uh, you've given us so much here. So uh, a particular business hack for um, hiring salespeople or um, sales methodology that you might want to share with everyone. Well, I, I get this a lot uh, around hiring. And so, I'm, in fact, I'm putting together a course that's going to live on my website on hiring salespeople and then on hiring sales managers. Uh, I have interviewed over 4,500 sales reps and sales leaders and hired four, uh, roughly 400, closer to 450 now throughout the, in the last decade. Brian, I don't even look at resumes anymore. Right. I don't want to see them. I don't care. Um, and here's why. It, it's not that it's not that they are full of half-truths and inflations. It's more so that I subscribe to the these these three C's: character, chemistry, then competency. The resume is all about competency. How many times have we hired someone that on paper was competent? but they just didn't fit in. We didn't enjoy spending time with them and it just wasn't going to work out. Right. So 
I don't care about the competency. I train folks to focus more on chemistry and character. So chemistry means that we have things in common. Okay, well, if you're going to have chemistry with me, Nigel Green, the sales leader, you're going to read. You can look behind and see that I like readers. I believe that readers are leaders. So I'm going to ask you questions about what you're reading. Uh, and so if you're not reading, if you don't read books, we're probably not going to get along. And so if you hire people that match your chemistry and your character, the competency piece is going to take care of itself. And so my, my hack in all of that is to say, start hiring people that have the same values as you, that you would enjoy spending time with outside of work. And the reason that's important is you're going to spend more time with these people than you likely will your spouse and some of your friends. So you damn well ought to get along with them. Yeah. I had a competency piece will take care of itself. Yeah. I had a good mentor of mine. He says character precedes conduct. And it goes to that point. If you hire for character, the conduct, the competency will, will show up. So agree with that one. And that is really wise, uh, wise advice there. And and by the way, if you don't know, um, what those pieces are really dive down into it. What are the behaviors? What are the, um, whenever you're looking at your culture, whenever you look at the character of others, it's easy to put something on the wall, but if you can't catch it, if you can't describe it, if you can't um, assess for behaviors that show that character, you're going to be in trouble. So take the the time to think through that stuff. So you can do exactly what Nigel said is, is really based on that or hiring on character. So I love that one. Um, You've given us a couple of books, but other uh, resources that you might recommend books, podcasts, anything else. Uh, oh, that's a good question. I, um, I think that, uh, you know, Mike Weinberg's got a lot of really good stuff on sales leadership. So if you haven't ran into him, he, he's a great resource. Um, I can't say enough about the work that my friend Anthony and Areno's done on, on selling. Uh, and, and I think that, um, you know, whatever it is, you need, you need to just be consuming stuff. I mean, if you're not learning, if you're not if you're not listening and to different books and podcasts and reading, it's, it's time to go find something. And so, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that's a good answer or not, but I, I think that there, the world is full of stuff to go read and learn. Yeah. It, plenty of good stuff out there, but you know, I always say learning for learning sake is pointless. It's learning for application sake. So, yeah. um, okay, good. And then um, the trends that you see, what, what, what's got you going, yeah, I can't wait for it to come or like a little bit nervous. What future trends are you looking out for? Uh, so I posted it on LinkedIn yesterday. My coach used to say, you can live with it, leave it or fix it. And, um, the trend I'm seeing, Brian, is that, uh, certainly sales reps and and the general American working group, they're not going to live with it. They're leaving it. 4.5 million folks quit their job in the month of November. So I'm wondering where are the fixers? We live in a world where people are just quitting. They're going to go. Do, they're going to go somewhere else. And I think my challenge is to the leaders to say, find the fixers and give them a seat at the table. If you want to win in the future, if you want to win this talent war, and if you want to build a best-in-class sales team, you're going to have to retain people. And the only way you're going to start that is to change. And change starts with identifying some fixers and giving them a voice. Don't let, if you see a fixer, don't let them leave. You got to keep them 
and help them be a change agent so you can build uh, a better team and win the talent war and take advantage of everyone that's not living with it and leaving other companies, invite them to come fix it with you. Yeah, because that's going to be the, the, the massive differentiator because you can copy so many other things, but you can't copy a team. Um, and that, like you're saying, that fixer, those proactive problem solvers, those are the ones that are going to make all the difference in the world. And if you as a leader are nervous around somebody else that's going to be able to solve stuff that maybe you couldn't, that doesn't make you a bad leader. That makes you a better leader. Uh, you know, leaders, uh, it's kind of curious. Leaders are whenever they're not needed, they're more wanted. And so that's really a, a good leadership to look for is you've really become a good leader whenever you're not needed, but you're wanted. And that comes from empowering others. So that's, ah, I love that one. Um, and timely, very timely. So my oh gosh, well, hey, Nigel, who should reach out to you? How should they do it? And why should people reach out to you? You have a sales team and you can't afford to miss your target, can't afford to miss your, your goals this year, and you're unsure that you've got all the tools in place, we should talk. And uh, you can find me at Nigel Green, N-I-G-E-L, green, just like the color, dot C-O. Uh, I have a workshop. It's uh, probably my highly, most highly desired offering. Uh, I do about 20 to 25 hours of diligence with you and your sales team. Uh, I look at every aspect of how you go to market, the technology, how you hire, how you train, uh, how you manage your customers, and it culminates in a one-day intensive workshop where I give you a plan to double your sales. Nice. Okay. And so they can reach out to you, say that, uh, that, that address again? Nigel, nigelgreen.co. Nigelgreen.co. There you go, everyone. Well, hey, Nigel, I can't thank you enough. Um, 2022, it's, it's a new year. Don't don't waste it. You did the planning. Now do the execution. It's boring oftentimes, but that's where the discipline comes. Um, get that team around you and do what Nigel said, would you? So, hey, thanks again, Nigel. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. All right. Be well.